Welcome back to Libromania, a podcast for the book obsessed, featuring interviews with contemporary authors, discussions about key figures and movements in literary history, examinations of various genres and current events in the literature world, and the celebrations of all the things that make books wonderful. Bookstores, book design, book collections, and so forth. I'm David Kern. This is Chapter 9, in which I chat with film critics Jeffrey Overstreet and Stephen Gray Danis about some of the very best film adaptations of great works of fiction. Films that I find most interesting as adaptations are those where the source material takes the artist somewhere that they wouldn't otherwise have gone, but then allows them to say something in their own voice, to express uh, some side of their own creativity that would otherwise have gone unexplored. Whenever anybody says, well, the book was better, that, that that's almost, almost a worthless statement. When I'm looking at literary adaptations, I, I assume it's going to be a different thing. And I have to decide, okay, do I value this new thing enough that it's worth talking about as its own work of art? But then it's a separate question to me, does this new thing honor and uphold and embrace the core question or ideal in that original work of art? Well, just last Sunday, the Oscars were on TV. This year, the Oscars had a lot of controversy about them, and even the final choices for some of the big awards were controversial in and of themselves, shall we say. But be that as it may, I want to talk about one of my favorite subjects in the world of literature. In fact, it's the intersection of two of my very favorite subjects, movies and books. So I wanted to chat with two of my favorite film critics, Jeffrey Overstreet of LookingCloser.org and Stephen Gradanis of DecentFilms.com about some of their favorite film adaptations of great works of fiction. This seemed like the best week to do it. We just had this massive Hollywood celebration of movies. Movies have been in the media. People have been talking about them. Even the controversies have been uh, keeping movies in the mainstream media conversation, so to speak. So this seemed like the best time to chat about this very subject. So got online, chatted with Stephen and Jeffrey Overstreet, about some of their favorite cinematic adaptations, but we began by discussing what makes a great movie adaptation of a book. Before we get into that question, though, I want to let you know about Jeffrey and Stephen. Jeffrey's been on this podcast before. He was on one of the very first episodes talking about the best movies of 2018. So if you've listened before, you know he is a four-time novelist. He is an award-winning film critic. He's a teacher of creative writing at Seattle Pacific University. And he also wrote a movie-going memoir called Through a Screen Darkly. It's one of my favorite books on movies, in fact. To learn more about Jeffrey, you can head over to lookingcloser.org. Stephen Gray Dennis created DecentFilms.com in 2000, where he's been posting his film reviews ever since. He's also the film critic for the National Catholic Register and a member of the New York Film Critics Circle. And he is a permanent deacon in the Catholic Archdiocese of New York. To discover his film reviews, head over to the National Catholic Register's website or decentfilms.com. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Jeffrey Overstreet and Stephen Gradanis. And as I said, we began the conversation by discussing what some of the characteristics are of a great film adaptation. Here it is. Hope you enjoy. Well, first of all, thanks to both of you for, for joining me. This is an honor to, to chat about film with both of you, two of my favorite film critics. So I'm going to uh, I'm gonna enjoy this a lot. So thanks for being here. Oh, it's a privilege. Thank you so much. So we're here to discuss uh, 
film adaptations of of novels. Oscar week was last week, and this is a podcast that is primarily con- concerned with um, the reading life, I suppose. But those two things, uh, this is this is the right week to bring those two things together, I think. So. I guess my first question then, before we get into your lists of your favorite film adaptations, are what, pretty simple, I guess. What do you think makes a, a great film adaptation? And Stephen, I'll turn to you first. Do you have, when, when you're thinking about this or when you were thinking about your list, were there some principles that immediately came to mind? Or did you have to really dig deep to say, to find some common themes in the films that you, that you chose? You know, this is a question that I think Jeffrey and I in particular have been wrestling with ever since, almost since the the start of our careers in writing about film. And a lot of these questions were raised in particular by the adaptations of The Lord of the Rings by Peter Jackson (laughs) and other films that were coming out at that time. (laughs) And so many questions that emerged out of that conversation about the relationship of film to its source material and you know what about what what is what does it mean to be faithful to the source and is that important yeah. and so yeah. forth these these questions we've we've been kind of knocking them around for a long time and what i've kind of come up with for myself is when i think of i mean first of all the only ironclad rule of a great adaptation is that it, you have to make a great film that's the only absolute but going a little bit beyond that i would say that films that i find most interesting as adaptations are those where the source material takes the artist somewhere that they wouldn't otherwise have gone but then allows them to say something in their own voice to express uh, some side of their own creativity that would otherwise have gone unexplored interestingly it was actually a song that helped me to first articulate this i was visiting a friend in california for one of those uh, junkets lord of the rings or something and he played me a song by the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. It was one of their versions of the Battle of New Orleans. Hmm. And it has such a weird musical fabric, the way that the, the singers chew the words as they sing them. And I turned to my friends and I said, this is a cover. Nobody writes that song and performs it that way themselves. Somebody else wrote that. And this is what, they're, this is what you get when you play with someone else's material. Mm. And and he confirmed that that was correct. And and so, and and I think that the best movie adaptations you have something similar happening. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I, I think you have to recognize that the the fundamental differences in the medium, um, you know, the a, a text based narrative asks the audience to. Um, engage their imaginations at a level and in a way that's completely different than watching a movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, you are, you are illustrating, uh, the text as you go. Um, motion pictures, uh, they do, you know, you don't need music. You don't need a cast. You don't even need a narrative to have a movie for a, for a movie. All you need are images in motion. All you need is cinema, basically the, the juxtaposition of images. So, you are going to have a tremendously different thing altogether and, and ask very different things of your audience altogether. If you are mm. uh, coming up with something from scratch or uh, adapting uh, a literary work. So uh, you have to assume that whenever anybody says, well, the book was better, that, that that's almost, almost a worthless statement because <laughs> <laughs> um, 
you can't, it's apples and oranges. So when I'm looking at literary adaptations, I, I assume it's going to be a different thing. Uh, and I have to decide, okay, do I value this new thing enough uh, that, it's, that it's worth talking about as its own work of art? But then mm. it's a separate question to me, does this new thing honor and uphold and embrace the core question or ideal in that original work of art. So, I mean, you can talk about something like Children of Men, yeah, where yeah. Uh, Quaron takes a book that he's barely read. I mean, he admitted in interviews that he, he kind of read the synopsis on the book jacket and decided, <laughs> well, there's some good ideas there. I'm going to make a movie. So I think of Children of Men, the movie, as a great film, but not a great adaptation because, I mean, he's fundamentally violating in some ways <laughs> the... Um, the, the convictions uh, that P.D. James had when she wrote the book. Mm -hmm. um, the Name of the Rose is the movie that got me thinking about this first. Uh, mm -hmm. The conversation came up around The Lord of the Rings as this community of film critics was growing. But way back in 1986, The Name of the Rose was a very popular novel, very complicated novel. I tried rereading it last year, and I was bored out of my mind because there's there's it's the author, is, Umberto Eco, is so interested in in history and theology that the mystery just kind of feels like an excuse for him to write what he's really interested in. But mm. as a movie starring Sean Connery and very young Christian Slater and F. Murray Abraham, uh, it's kind of a, a Poirot uh, or maybe, maybe Brother Cadfell kind of thing. Um, and what I noticed about that adaptation is that while it has little to no interest in the deeper questions of the novel. It admits right up front that this, it does not say based on the novel. It does not say inspired by the novel. It says it's a palimpsest of the novel. And that is a really strange word. Uh, palimpsest is when, I mean, I'm just looking at a Google search definition here, something reused or altered, but still bearing visible traces of its earlier form. And that seems to fit exactly with what I'm seeing when I watch The Name of the Rose. There are visible traces of Echo's novel, but most of it has been obliterated, and now somebody is writing something almost entirely new over those traces. Mm. So uh, the, na the name of the rose felt very, very honest to me as a film in, in that way. And so I, I think that a lot of it is semantics. A lot of it is, you know, is this really an adaptation mm. or is this somebody's effort to make something in celebration of something, some aspect of the book that they liked? Uh, and so it gets complicated uh, movie by movie really fast. Steven, do you, do you agree with that distinction that he's making? In, in terms of how I, he's I think, it? yeah, I, I absolutely. And I, I think that it's, it's very important to, um, to recognize that there are multiple ways in which a film can engage its source material. And that, that uh, approach, what I've, what I've called sometimes the random plundering approach <laughs> um, <laughs> It, it, it can make for a very bad film, but it can also make for very good ones. So for me, there's 
there are multiple levels. Um, you can try to make a film that is as faithful as possible, or at least following the source material as closely as possible. And that can give you a very stiff wooden adaptation, but it can also give you something very lovely. I'm thinking, for instance, of a movie that I know that Jeffrey and I both value, Watership Down. Yes. The, um, the animated film, which is, is not, you know, obviously not a, a perfectly faithful um adaptation no, of, it's of drastically book, but, drastically abridged yeah but but it's but it's as faithful as possible given yeah. the limitations and 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 um uh the approach that they took you can also try to be faithful in spirit um to honor the essence of the source material while going your own way in in various respects but then there's a third kind of engagement which i think is very interesting where the filmmaker is subversive of the source material in some way, where they engage mm. it critically. I'm mm. thinking here, for instance, of, of Andrei Tarkovsky's Solaris, mm. uh, which honors some of the themes and the ideas in the original novel by, by Stanislaw Lem, but where Lem really wanted to use the, the premise of science fiction to take characters and and by extension, the reader, to a place where normal human and emotional reactions didn't make sense, where it wasn't possible to have a human response to the things that you were confronted with. Tarkovsky really humanized uh, the same images and the same ideas to, to come up with a, something that was really fundamentally different from Lem and which Lem really didn't like at all, uh, and, and justly so. Oh yeah, that 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 reminds me of, of Spielberg's adaptation of Empire of the Sun, where the okay. the book is is um, a very very different thing. But Spielberg saw in that story an opportunity to tell his own story about being caught up in the wonder of movies by telling this story about this kid in a concentration camp uh, being caught up in the glory of warplanes, uh, and so. I don't know if he meant to subvert the book, but he took it and and sort of wrapped it around what he really cares about, and it became an entirely different thing. Hmm. What I think provides an interesting an interesting challenge to these kinds of questions, though, is when a film departs from its source material in such a way that you something you feel like something has been lost, and something more interesting has not been put in its place. Yeah. Um, I remember when Suzanne and I sat down to watch Neil Jordan's The End of the Affair. Um, that was exactly the one I was thinking of. Yes. <laughs> Based on the novel by Graham Greene. And at this yeah. point, neither of us had read the novel. We hadn't read the novel. And as we were watching, we were going along, going along, going along. And when we got to the exact moment in the <laughs> film where it subverts the whole premise of the novel, the Suzanne turned premise. to me yes. and said, did Graham Greene really write that? And I thought, I don't know. So I went to the I went to the library and I borrowed the book. And it's amazing how people praise this film for being a faithful adaptation of the, oh, the end of the affair, in yeah. spite of the fact that the affair doesn't end. It's really quite drastic. <laughs> it's, it's a total betrayal of the heart of that book. It really, really huh. is. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> well, okay. So I, I've got um uh, since you mentioned that one. We were going to discuss some honorable mentions and then some of your some of your favorite adaptations. But I am curious. I want to give you each a chance to uh, to rail against a couple, maybe that a couple other ones that maybe you you really don't like. Not that I don't want to be too negative, but I'm curious. Not because I want you to get a chance to just be negative, but because I'm curious why those particular. I mean, is it simply because they change something, or or is it or is it primarily in most of the instances for you because 
of because they eliminated something of the spirit of the book. Um, so I'm curious if you've if you've thought about if there's any through lines in in the one in the ver- in in this film adaptations of books that that don't work for you. I don't want to spend too much of this conversation on yeah, this particular likewise. author, but uh, I'm, I'm I know from experience that Stephen's going to back me up on this. He may be thinking about the very same thing. But if I ever have to watch those Peter Jackson Hobbit movies again, I'm going to <laughs> smash the thing. Um, that too is not just a plundering. Um, not just a betrayal. It's it's a it's an exploitation of a beloved story, um, subverting the 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 heart of the story, subverting the themes, subverting the, mo- the primary motivations of the characters to become just basically a playground for Peter Jackson's CGI aspirations and incredibly crass. Um, you know, ex- excuses for sensational violence. Um, I was so upset by the end of the first Hobbit movie that I, I swore I wasn't going to watch the other two. I eventually broke down and tried to watch the second one, and I, ha- I won't come anywhere near the third one. It just, it's such a beloved, wonderful children's story. Um, but what also hurts watching those Hobbit movies is he's also cheapening and diluting and demeaning his own accomplishment in what I think is a rather remarkable adaptation in, in the first film of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, The Fellowship of the Ring, mm-hmm. which uh, surpassed my wildest dreams for a Lord of the Rings movie. Mm-hmm. So that's a painful subject for me. <laughs> well, we won't, we won't, I won't make you dive too deep into that right now then. Stephen, do you have anything in mind or, would, or do you want to just uh, agree with that one? Pile on Peter I, Jackson before we praise him. I, I, I have, I have a couple of thoughts. Um, I have another example of a film that tries to go the Neil Jordan route of honoring its source material, but fundamentally either doesn't understand it or winds up subverting it for some other reason. Um, among these is the film um, Father Brown, uh, sometimes known in the U.S. as The Detective, with Alec Guinness as G.K. Chesterton's uh, clerical <laughs> sleuth. I, I have this film, one I haven't and, seen. Yeah, okay, so so um, and Guinness is really quite wonderful in the role. He's a very good Father Brown, and this is the role, by the way, that led to his conversion to Catholicism um, in in wow. playing this in playing this um, uh, this priest and and in shooting scenes in France. He was really struck by the way that uh, a, a child approached him and, you know, thought because he was in, in clerical blacks, he was in a, uh, in a cassock, that he was a real priest and just grabbed him by the hand and was chattering away to him in French. And Guinness didn't dare to talk because his, he said his French was terrible. <laughs> but but that, that expression of, of trust and affection from a child made him see Catholicism in a new light. And he had grown up rather anti-Catholic and it began a process of breaking down his prejudices. So that's a little, it's a little interesting bit of history uh, to this particular film, which, which makes me fond of it. But Chesterton's Father Brown um, is the, the quintessential English de- fictional detective in a cassock. Um, and what makes him, what, what's so subversive about the way that Chesterton writes him is that everyone thinks that he's this kind of pious simpleton who doesn't know about the evils of the world and the evils that lurk in men's hearts. But it turns out that someone who hears confessions for a living uh, knows quite a bit about evil. And, and he's able to out, outwit um, not only the most uh, brilliant criminal minds of his time, but also very often um, the most brilliant 
professional detectives as well. And in this adaptation, in The Detective, um, some of the specific moments in Chesterton's work where Father Brown proves himself to be the smartest man in the room are subverted and and the bad guys wind up getting the drop on him. And I just, I, I, you could just see Chesterton really tearing at his hair um, watching something like that. I also just want to throw out very quickly um, the adaptation of Charlotte's Web by... Um, oh, yeah. Um, the, the, not, not the animated one, but the, but the live action one the from... The more recent one? Yeah. Um, I'm blanking on the name of the studio. Um, they also did Holes. Um, Walden. Oh, Walden. Meet- Walden. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. And what among the many things that bothered me about that is that Walden tried early on to take a very literary approach to children's adaptations that were supposed to be good. And here they're working with a writer, with E.B. White, who's just... He's known for his wonderful prose, and you know you have a you have a sentence like this. This is this is E. B. White describing the barn where uh, Wilbur meets Charlotte. He writes, "It smelled of the perspiration of tired horses and the wonderful sweet breath of patient cows. It often had a peaceful smell, as though nothing bad could ever again ha- could happen ever again in the world." Now, if you want to drop that. And add images that convey that idea, that's fine. If you want to drop that and have a narrator read something else, come up with something to match that. But this is what they have in in the film. Come to think of it, it couldn't be more ordinary. But sometimes, if you take two ordinary things and put them together, they become less ordinary. The barn was full of living things, but that didn't mean it was full of life. Who thinks that that's... An improvement on what White wrote. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> a screenwriter who thinks they're smart, I suppose. Yeah. There, there's another one that is not going to fit into favorites or, or um, living nightmares, um, but uh, that, that is such an interesting exception and that complicates the conversation about adaptations so much. Um, that I think it bears mentioning, and that is perhaps the most obvious title in this entire conversation, uh, Charlie Kaufman's Adaptation, um, which was such an interesting um, production. I have never flipped on a movie uh, like I've flipped on this one. The the first Mm -hmm. time I saw it, I I had started reading Susan Orlean's book, The Orchid Thief, which I was told this was based on. And um, I was so upset, although I wasn't, so upset that it was clearly not an adaptation of Susan Orlean's The Orchid Thief at all. <laughs> um, I was upset because the, the book is so sincere and earnest and interesting and full of wonderful questions. And this movie was about this reprehensible guy, uh, really, really gross uh, relationships between people and about exploitation and greed and self-absorption, like most Charlie Kaufman films, come to think of it. Um, <laughs> Uh, and by the end, I was so upset, so disgusted with these characters that I was just like, what, what a betrayal, what a horrible thing. And then the more I thought about it, the more I read about it, the more I realized that, you know, this, this was not, this was called adaptation, but, but that's exactly right. It's about the, all the different interests in play when something like this happens, that the studio saw a bestseller and saw an opportunity and, hired him because he was a hot writer 
but he just didn't connect with the material, but he had signed on to do this. And so the movie becomes about a screenwriter, an aspiring screenwriter, trying to make something of this book, meeting the author, their varying interests clashing, uh, the fact that they are two human beings uh, forming a relationship. You know, I mean, it, it becomes this very, very meta uh, movie. Um, but now, I mean, now that I've gone back to watch what the filmmaker wanted to achieve, as opposed to um, what my sentimental attachment to that book is, I see it again as a completely different work of art, one that does engage with the ideas of the orchid thief in a very interesting way, um, but that leaves us with all kinds of questions to take to all kinds of other adaptations. And so I think it was a great contribution to this very conversation that, that people have about mm. the art of adaptation. So I really value that movie now and I can admire the performances. And now, you know, that I have a better sense of who Charlie Kaufman is, I kind of know what I'm getting into. Mm. Um, but you, I recommend, I recommend that one for anybody who's, re who's wrestling with, with these questions. Mm. Before we get into our, uh, before we get into your list, um, uh, one one last question about this: do, do do either of you, as critics, find that you have to, or find it challenging to disconnect yourself, you know, as critics from the fan version of yourself? Like, if you loved Lord of the Rings, say, or The Hobbit, or whatever, do you, where's the balance between saying, you know, looking at it open mindedly, so to speak, as a critic, just viewing the film for what it is? as opposed to bringing your fandom into that. Is that a challenge for you or, have you, or is that over the years, have you managed to, you know, be experienced enough to make that pretty easy? Stephen, how, where does that um, work? How does that work out for you? There are two very different viewing experiences of an adaptation based on your familiarity or lack of familiarity with the source material. Mm -hmm. And I think the critic has to be honest about where they uh, fall in that experience. Um, you have to, you have to say, this is a story that I've read or that I haven't read and, mm. and how that try to at least try to reflect on how that colors your experience of the film. Mm. And you, and you I think, be honest with the people who are reading the review in the review, be honest, not with yourself. Yes, that's okay. That's yeah. right. Yeah. But it, it starts with, um, you know, if, if you are a fan of the source material, you know, you, you, the, the critical habit, I think, is to try to watch the film almost in a kind of a split personality way. You see it both through the eyes of a fan, and then you also try to see it at least, you know, appreciating it for the work of art that it is or is not. Hmm. And I, I think that both of those are important. I think you have to give ultimately more weight to the second because, like I said, the filmmaker's only final obligation is to make a good film. Uh, and how that relates to the source material may impact how we receive that film. And that's part of the conversation, but it's ultimately the, the filmmaker's responsibility is to their vision and, and to what it is that they want to do. And so you, as, as long as you don't do something, as long as you don't s s replace something good in the book with something bad on the screen, then, you know, you're making a good film. Hmm. I, I can think of three examples that sort of map this out for me. Uh, one is that I grew up with the Disney version of Winnie the Pooh. And, uh -huh. and I love it. I love it so much. I love those characters. I love the sweetness of that, uh, the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh, that, or, that sort of original collection that I love so much. Hmm. Just finally came out on, on Blu-ray this last year, and I, was, I jumped on that. <laughs> um, 
Um, but my shout out to my friend Martin Stillian, who is a, uh, a musician and a writer himself. Uh, he he can't hold still when that subject comes up because he he feels that the Disney version uh, so misrepresents A. A. Milne's original stories, hmm. and I fought that for a long time, um, and eventually had to admit that he's right. Um, that the the books really are about something different. And we really do lose something in the Disney adaptation and the Disney desire to to merchandise uh, Milne. Um, mm-hmm. So when, whenever I talk about that movie, I have to I have to admit in writing if I'm if I'm writing about it that that I grew up with this. This is part of my DNA. When I'm writing an, when I'm writing a novel for adults, the Disney Winnie the Pooh is working on me as I set up my characters and my hundred acre wood of territory. Um, but I also have to say that the, the the books are a beautiful thing that are not well represented by the the Disney productions. Mm-hmm. By contrast, um, I am not, which is, which is quite a statement to make, considering that no writer that Disney ever adapted was as well served and his voice as well preserved as A. A. Milne. Yeah, yeah, true. So if they, if they didn't even get him right, think about all the others. Right, right. Um, by contrast, I am not a fan of Philip Pullman's The Golden Compass. Um, when the first book came out, I was a big fan of that because it was so ambitious and so beautifully written. And I loved the characters and the world and where it was going. And then the sequels came out and it went all the wrong places. And um, so when the movie came out, I was supposed to write about it. And I had to admit that, well, this movie is not very faithful ultimately to Pullman's central ideas, Hmm. but I don't care (laughs) because I don't necessarily want this film to be a big success because I don't want more children reading those stories, which I think are subversive and actually harmful for children. And I know I'm going to get mail about that, but that, that was my experience of that. Um, But then more recently I got into more complicated territory when a book called story of a girl, a young adult novel that was nominated for the national book award was turned into a lifetime movie. And I love that novel. I would have loved that novel if I had read it com- with no connection to the author. But the fact is that the author is one of my best friends. So when I read the book and could honestly say, this is a great work of art. I love this. I'm going to use this book in my fiction classes. Great. Then it became a lifetime movie adaptation. And I know the author had concerns, but was excited. I had concerns, but was excited. Um, she saw the movie and it was a complicated experience for her. And I, I won't speak for her on that, but she has written a fantastic, uh, essay about the experience of watching her book become a movie made by people. She really looks up to Kira Sedgwick and Kevin Bacon. And that essay is available in, uh, image. Uh, if you go to imagejournal.org uh, and search for an article called adaptation, uh, she narrates her sort of scene by scene, her experience of watching her book transformed, uh, updated to uh, contemporary circumstances and take on a life of its own and how it became a completely different thing. And what a strange, complicated experience that was for her. I watched the movie and immediately sort of dismissed myself from the uh, community of critics who would be writing reviews because I didn't think the movie was, was really worth writing about. Uh, it had a couple of interesting performances in it, but it really was kind of a lifetime movie. And I had, I had hoped for so much better for that book. However, I know it was such a great experience for Sarah 
and it brought her book to a larger audience. Yeah. And it was such a growing experience for everyone involved that I'm glad it exists. I'm glad it happened. And I would happily watch it again because of what it makes me think about in this whole adaptation question. But it does, it does go to show this, that, that some filmmakers aren't the right choices and don't have the right resources to really preserve and honor and promote um, the achievement of the author. Hmm. I, I appreciate that you guys are talking about the complicated nature of the subject because I think, I mean, like I said at the top, this is a podcast primarily for for book lovers. So people who are very, you know, committed to the books that they love often can be harsh <laughs> about <laughs> the uh, film adaptations of those books, sometimes justifiably so, and sometimes not justifiably so. But I, hopefully, this conversation will help people uh, maybe be a little bit. Mm, perhaps more empathetic to the, to the artists who are trying to bring their favorite stories to the screen. Um, but with that, let's, let's dive into some of to your lists. Do we, I asked you each to bring five. Well, we had some honorable mentions and we can touch on those if you'd like, but we, for time's sake, we may want to just dive into to your top fives um, if that's okay. Sure. Uh, so uh, Jeffrey, I'll go to you first. What's your, we'll go from five to one. If, if you, if you ordered them, According to your, according to actual preference, as opposed to randomly, <laughs> if you have your fifth, what's what's your fifth on on your list and your top? Oh five? boy, I did I didn't order them, so let me think for a second. Second, um, um, well, of these five, um, I'm I'm almost inclined to dismiss uh, the Rankin Bass cartoon version of The Hobbit, just because it is so such a sentimental thing for me. I grew up with it as a kid, but I think that for a very strange little animated, it, it really does honor Tolkien's story beautifully. Hmm. Um, but that's almost, I mean, that's not, arguably not a big screen film. So instead, I'm going to throw in Where the Wild Things Are. Um, that is, I mean, that is a picture book, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it has this 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 wonderful... Uh, rhyme <laughs> that goes with it, but uh, that is a film that that loves the book, loves the artwork, and also acknowledges that the audience uh, for a movie would be people who grew up with the book mm -hmm. and have a sentimental attachment to it. And so the film, while it is a very different thing, it's deliberately so. It's for adults who need to remember what that book meant to them, it's for uh, young people who need uh, to live in a, in a place that is safe for them to imagine, uh, to live in a place that is safe for them to work out their frustrations and anxieties in, in, in the world of make-believe. Uh, it is beautifully filmed, beautifully cinematic. Uh, the costumes are extraordinary. The music is extraordinary. The performances are strong. Yeah, that's um, a great cast. I've, I've seen it several times now, and every time... Uh, I, I love it more, and, and, and it's usually a good sign if I feel absolutely compelled to write about something when I see it. And every time hmm. I watch this movie, I want to write about it. Hmm. So that would be uh, number five for me. Are we going to go back and forth, or should I just plow yeah, through? Yeah, we'll go back and forth. Okay. So, um, and, and I'll go for people, just, just for some context for people, I'll mention that that is the 2009 version that Spike Jones. Yes, thank you. Uh, okay, Stephen, what's your number five? I, I honestly don't know if I can if I can rank these the way Fair that enough. you suggested, but <laughs> um, I, I I just have mine listed in chronological order. Um, I'm I'm going to start with The Big Sleep, 1946. Mm. Wow. Um, Howard Hawks, based on the novel by Raymond Chandler, um, starring Humphrey Bogart and, and Lauren Bacall. It's a I'm Philip so glad Marlo you mentioned mystery. this one. 
And, and what I love about it as an adaptation is that um, Chandler brings to the project an incredibly labyrinthine plot that you can watch the movie over and over and over or read the book over and over and over and still not fully understand everything that happens. Yeah, kind of all the, the different people who are killed and all of the people who uh, did or may have killed them. Yeah. Um, it's, but what stands out to you are the, the individual moments, the, mm. um, the snapping dialogue, the, uh, the chemistry between Bogey and Bacall, the very different chemistry between Bogey and the various antagonists that he goes up against, uh, this kind of riveting electric tension. Um, and, and the fact that the plot overwhelms you is part of that experience because you kind of go through it. It's, it's a little bit like um, trying to ford a, a, a raging river and there's this one rock at the center that you just kind of hold on to. And that's bogey. He's, hmm. he's negotiating this world. He's navigating it. And he has the, the confidence and the, um, um, the, the, the calm and, and the command to kind of impose some version of sense on everything that's happening. That, hmm. that, goes right up until the very last scene where he's literally improvising the explanation of what happened that he's going to tell the police you know and, and you, what really happened and what's what's his version of what happened i saw that film on the big screen in philadelphia and when it first came was, out when it, no 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 <laughs> <laughs> obviously not no this was in the 1990s i saw it at uh, temple university cinematheque and I was just so electrified. I immediately went out and bought it on VHS and watched it again the next night mm. because I wanted to try to figure it out. Mm. Wow! One thing I love about that movie, and I and I I'm a I'm a huge Chandler fan, um, but I love the atmosphere that they manages yes. to capture because you're right. I mean, I've read that novel many times. I don't really know what the plot is. I don't really know. <laughs> I mean, like, but like, you it said, doesn't matter. Exactly. It's kind of it's almost the point that you don't know what's happening. But the atmosphere. Do you know the famous story about um, Hawks calling up Chandler to ask him about a particular murder. Or a particular no, I, plot point? no, I didn't know that. So, so at one point during the filming, Hawks gets Chandler on the phone and he says, so we're, we're trying to shoot the scene and I'm not sure I follow. <laughs> I, I think it was, I think it was a murder. He said, exactly. Who was it that killed this person or how did this thing? And Chandler, this is the legend. This is the story. Chandler stopped. How the hell should I know? And hung up on him. <laughs> <laughs> but but one of the things that Chandler's so good at atmosphere, and I think that Hawks um, and and Bogart and that you know in his acting even they managed to capture that sort of sleazy atmosphere that that's in the book without making it you know unwatchable. And I I kind of I've heard talk that or I've heard that there is talk of doing an adaptation now, and I almost. I mean, I don't know why we'd need one, but one of the reasons why I don't think we need one is because I fear that people would be, you know, they, they'd let themselves be a little bit too uh, carried away with trying to capture the atmosphere in a way that might might be might do a disservice to to the characters in the novel. I, I think they try, to, they try to do too much with it. I think now, so it might have been the perfect time to adapt a novel like that. Um, well, anyway, okay. So number four for you, Jeffrey, what's your number four? We could talk, uh, we could talk about each of these for their uh, whole podcast on each of them. So we got, I, I got to say, I, 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 now I know what I'm going to prioritize next time. I can just watch whatever I want. I haven't seen that in a long time and I've never read it either. So, um, I, I should, I should mention that with this list here, I, I only chose from among 
films where I know I know the literary source very very well. Mm. Uh, so I'm disqualifying some of my favorite films like Blade Runner, which is an mm. adaptation of Philip K. Dick's uh, Do Androids Dream? Of yeah, Life. yeah. Um, weird little book. Uh, the movie is again loosely <laughs> based on it, um, but one of my top ten films of all time. Babette's Feast. Similarly, I've read the short story. I don't remember the short story very much. Yeah. Um, the movie is among my all-time favorites, but I just don't think I can talk much about the adaptation of it. So in that case, for four, I'm going to say No Country for Old Men. Mm. Um, mm. Cormac McCarthy is very, very difficult to adapt to film. Uh, I think The Road proved that. Yeah. Uh, I think the fact that Blood Meridian, thank God, has not become a movie yet uh, proves that. I hope it never does. <laughs> yeah, that would be no one, no one should have to sit through that on the big screen. <laughs> um, but when I read No Country for Old Men... Um, uh, I read it right when it came out and I remember remarking to my wife as I read the opening chapters, man, these two, this, this married couple in the opening chapters, when they talk to each other, I hear Nicolas Cage and Holly Hunter. Hmm. I hear Raising Arizona. I, oh. I would almost swear that McCarthy is a Coen Brothers fan because this dialogue is sparking like the Coen Brothers. Hmm. And it was, I think, two weeks later that the announcement came that the Coen brothers were going to make No Country for Old Men. I was like, I think this was a plan all along. <laughs> I think McCarthy wanted to work with them and he wrote something that he knew they would love. I may be wrong about that, but it turned out so brilliantly. They mm. That movie works so well. It honors the book powerfully. It preserves the most audacious literary moves that McCarthy makes in mm. that book, mm. especially the ending, mm. which subverts any Western gunslinger story uh, that I know. And um, it just speaks powerfully right into the zeitgeist, I think, right into this sense of an unraveling of the West, uh, Western ideas and, and democracy in America. Um, mm. And the, the consequences of the idolization or the idolatry, I guess is the better word, of uh, the, the gunslinging hero. So um, I think that's a, a great representation of the book. I recommend both of them uh, very mm -hmm. much, but not for different reasons. I think that the central ideas are preserved very well. And the movie is just such such a masterpiece as far as sort of Hitchcockian suspense and mm -hmm. uh, editing, uh, casting, everything. Um, so I, I love that book-movie combination. Mm. One thing I love about the Coen brothers is the way they work so hard to preserve the language in the books that they that they adapt, even in, yeah. you see in True Grit as well, where there's, you know, it's, it's in some ways it's a Coen Brothers screenplay, but it's, it's certainly also a Charles Portis screenplay. It's so true to the, uh, to the, to the novel that Charles Portis wrote. Does, I was tempted to say that one. Yeah. And, and I, I think it's much truer to the book than the original True Grit movie. So, oh, oh yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Steven, does No Country show up on your list? Uh, no, and I, I'm not particularly a fan of No Country, although I honestly did consider um, putting True Grit on my list, which I love because it does that thing of taking the Coens someplace where and it's, it's hard to say where the Coens' own resources will take them. But, <laughs> uh, but Portis's very specific language and, and the, the uh, biblical allusions and, and the cultural richness of it, I think, is something that has informed the Cohen sensibility even when they aren't adapting Portis. And, mm. and I, I mm. think in, in coming to this particular novel, um, to, to True Grit, they, they had an opportunity to, uh, to be almost more Cohen-y than they are in, in many of their mm. other films. And I, I think huh. it's just a really um, fantastic 
um, marriage of of a source and the filmmakers who are really right to uh, to adapt it. But I didn't I didn't put True Grit on my list. Um, I, I have some other, I have a couple other films that I was I was debating which of them I was going to talk about. Um, I'm, I was kind of I was thinking about talking about um, Robert Brisson's Diary of a Country Priest, yeah, um, based yeah. on a novel by uh, Georges Bernanos, um, which is very faithful in many respects to to the to the scenes and to the themes that it, it takes from the novel, and really finds uh, an extraordinary cinematic idiom to explore. The, the fundamental idea that the, that the novel is concerned with, which is uh, the workings of, of grace in the world and how, how you express grace, the invisibility of grace in a novel and how you express it with images on a screen are very different questions. Um, mm. But there's a correspondence between them. And I think that that's a very interesting uh, book and um, movie combination as well. But I think I'm going to, I'm going to mention something else instead. I'm going to cheat. <laughs> and I'm going to to mention an adaptation for something that is not a novel and which I haven't read, um, but I, I think it almost doesn't matter. Um, Alfred Hitchcock's The Wrong Man, 1956, based hmm. on the true story of Christopher Emmanuel uh, Balestro by um, Maxwell Anderson, a book that I don't even know if it's in print. Um, it is it is a nonfiction story about the real case that inspired this film. And what I find, and, and the, the, I understand, although I haven't read it, I understand that the movie does very faithfully follow its source material with respect to the, um, the aspects of, of the story that it adapts at all. There's, there's a lot that's left off, um, off the screen, a lot of the police procedure and so forth, because the story is told from Manny's point of view. Manny is played by um, Henry Fonda. And um, what... I find fascinating about this as a work of adaptation is that Hitchcock approached this film with, he was, he was so struck by the particulars of this true story that a lot of his, um, uh, his, his cinematic mannerisms and idioms and, um, and interests kind of evaporate. He doesn't do the, the mordant humor that he does in a lot of his other films. Um, he doesn't do a lot of the, a lot of the, the, the ticks and, and, and tricks that we think of as Hitchcockian. He's, he's trying hmm. to do something different. And what he finds in, in that kind of stripped down version of Hitchcock, I think there's, I think that there's a purity to it that uh, you, you really see that the essence of who he is as a filmmaker um, mm. in the telling of this, this very simple, straightforward story and in, the, in its attempt to be as true as possible to the facts of the case. And one of the things that comes through is um, the, the spirituality of Hitchcock. You know, the, a lot has been written about Hitchcock as a, as a Catholic filmmaker, and uh, there are elements of Catholic piety and in uh, a, a deeper and broader way of Catholic sensibility going throughout his work. But in two films in particular, uh, which came out very close together, I confess, and, and this film, um, The Wrong Man, I think you find his, this, the spirituality of, of Hitchcock as an artist more explicitly expressed than anywhere else in his work. In fact, the, the climax of this film turns on an answer to prayer. And Hitchcock expresses that with a dissolve. It's it's the master shot of the film. It's it's an amazing shot, and it is 
a it's it's a it's an affirmation of that same kind of interaction of grace in the world that I think that Brisson was trying to express in a very very different idiom in Diary of a Country Priest. Hmm. So Jeffrey, you've got uh, you've done two. So what's your third one? All right, for my th- for my third one, I think we we mentioned this earlier, but I am going to say Watership Down. Um, hmm. And a lot of the reasons why I think we've already covered in talking about some of the other films, but again, that's a story I grew up with. Um, it, it's the most important novel to me in, in, mm. in my life as a storyteller. Um, and I, I would suspect I'm sentimentally attached to it, but every time I watch it, I think this exactly captures the spirit of the story. They honor that Watership Down is a story not just about animals trying to survive, uh, not just a wartime story that reflects Richard Adams' wartime experiences the way uh, that C.S. Lewis and and Tolkien's stories manifest their own wartime experiences. Um, It's also um, a powerful story about storytelling, about the role of mythology in uh, shaping communities, um, about the role of mythology in uh, giving us a glimpse, as Tolkien would say, of the ultimate story, um, which no other genre but mythology or fantasy enables us to access, because no other genre allows us to um, <laughs> to have the audacity to say we can see the full picture. We can get glimpses of how things are ultimately going to turn out, uh, because that's that can't be based on our personal experiences. We have to we have to step into make believe for that. And I think Watership Down captures that in this powerful climactic sequence when the line between the mythological world and the real world blurs Hmm. and you have characters from the mythology speaking directly into, um, I put quotes around this, the real world uh, to expose the fact that there is no division. And it also has a very uh, powerful perspective on death that um, I have a hard time finding an equivalent for in literature where um, the figure of death that has seemed so evil and threatening and villainous through the course of the story is ultimately revealed as more of an agent of change, uh, not so much the enemy of the story, uh, but the one that enables characters to make choices uh, for causes larger than themselves, and the one that uh, absolves and enables a character to surrender uh, the future of the people he loves so much uh, to them. Um, so that he can move on to his quote unquote next adventure. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's definitely a fantasy novel for adults, but I'm so grateful I read it when I was 10 and so grateful that I saw the movie as, as soon as it came out, uh, because it, um, it has also taught me the power of, of the visual medium of cinema. I, so I fell in love with the animation there and learned to draw by trying to copy the images I had seen in the movies of Watership Down and the Rankin-Bass adaptation of The Hobbit. Mm. Uh, I should also mention that Angela Morley composed what I think is one of the most gorgeous scores I've ever heard for a film. Mm. Um, so it's such a marriage of, it's such a collaboration uh, of all of the things that make a great film and that make great, great animation. Uh, and yet it completely honors the, the heart of the story in, in ways that I don't even want to talk about the new Netflix adaptation. Yeah, I was going to uh, ask, I, I was going to ask. I, for I'm no longer <laughs> worried about the Netflix adaptation eclipsing this one. I think in time it's, it, I mean, I think it's already clear that it doesn't hold a candle to uh, Martin Rosen's achievement here. Hmm. 
This is from nineteen late seventies, right? Seventy seven, seventy eight, something uh, like 78, that. Seventy eight, actually. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, and who is I, it? I, I is John Hurt that's in it? John Hurt uh, is the voice of Hazel. Absolutely. Okay. It's a it's a who's who of uh, sort of uh, British talents of the time. The way the new the way the Netflix version is a who's who uh, of you know John Boyega and and uh, yeah, James yeah. McAvoy et cetera. Now yeah yeah. Um, and uh, the great Michael Hordern is the the narrator and also the voice of Frith, the sun god. So, mm. yeah, it's uh, it, it it's quite a time capsule. <laughs> Stephen, does that show up on your list? Uh, I specifically avoided Watership Down because I knew that Jeffrey was going to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Jeffrey and I know each other well enough, I think, to be able to anticipate some of our choices. <laughs> and I know how important that film was for Jeffrey mm. as an adaptation. I really wanted to hear him talk about it. And I think mm. we just heard why. Yeah, yeah. What's your number three? So I, for my number three, I also picked a children's novel that uh, was made into a really wonderful film. One of my all-time favorite children's films uh, and one that I, I enjoy watching very much as an adult. Babe, 1995, mm. uh, directed <laughs> by Chris Noonan, adapted from the novel by Dick Kingsmith and co-written by, uh, with the producer George Miller. This mm. is, is... That is a, that is a very interesting piece of work by George Miller, given his other work. And I didn't, include, that, I didn't include this on my list because I wanted to hear Stephen talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and it's, it, this, it's really, first of all, a wonderful marriage of source material with filmmakers precisely because George Miller has this fundamental darkness to his work, yeah. which he in, is he injects just the right amount of that into a story that I think you know as much as I enjoy the novel by Dick Kingsmith, it's a little thin, it's a little light, hmm. and the 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 more menacing and troubling aspects that Miller, I presume it's Miller, injects into the screenplay that he that he co-wrote with Noonan makes the film something much richer and more substantial. Hmm. This film came out the same year as Toy Story from Pixar, a movie that completely changed the landscape of American animation and entertainment. And what the two of them have in common is the creation of a cultural world of anthropomorphic characters um, that makes sense for the kind of thing that they are. But here's the thing. Toy Story had one... Um, sort of uh, um, toy box culture for all the toys in Andy's room. All the toys have basically the same outlook. They have different accents, you might say, but they all have fundamentally the same way of looking at the world. What's so fascinating about Babe is how this pig from outside the sheep farm comes to this farm and the sheep have one worldview and the uh, border collies have another uh, perspective. And then there's Ferdinand the duck and the, um, the cat duchess. Each animal sees life on the farm from their own point of view. And it's all of these perspectives are very limited. So there's, there are elements of prejudice that grow up between the characters. The sheep regard the dogs as vicious wolves. The dogs <laughs> regard the sheep as stupid and just needing to be dominated and bossed around. And Babe, because he comes from outside this world, isn't limited by any of these perspectives. And he's able to transcend these social divisions and, and to be a unifying force on the farm. Hmm. Um, you can't help comparing Babe 
with another much more famous story about a talking pig on a farm, um, Charlotte's Web by E.B. White, which we, we touched on before. And I love Charlotte's Web, but when I read it to my children, I can't help noticing that Wilbur is he's a very passive protagonist. Yeah, yeah. Uh, right. He does almost nothing throughout the story. Um, until the very end, when he bribes Templeton the Rat to save Charlotte's egg sack as, as a way of thanking um, the spider who saved his life. Hmm. Babe is a much more dynamic protagonist. He, he takes his fate into his own trotters, and he challenges <laughs> the, uh, the, the preconceptions of the other characters. And it's realized with such gorgeous cinematography. Hoggett Farm uh, is, is a masterpiece of production design it's a, it's a character unto itself um the the music is it's 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 perfectly scored and noonan shoots shoots it with such restraint and and it has there's a spirit to this film that is unlike any other film that i've ever seen and and it's something that i really treasure mm. babe for me was the movie mm-hmm. that made me um Want a border collie when I was growing up, ah. <laughs> <laughs> and also make me made me think of James Cromwell. In a, you know, every time I see a James Cromwell movie, that's what I think of. Of course, I was probably oh, I was like ten years old when that came out. But you know, I'm really glad that you mentioned these two. You both mentioned these two movies, Watership Down and Babe, together because in my home, I've got my oldest is seven. My boys are six and seven, and then younger. But that these two movies have been a. Not a not a debate really, but the two movies that we've been discussing. When do we let them watch them? Are they too dark? You know. So, th- so you mentioned them both in connection with each other, which I'm sure you you probably plan there, Stephen. But um, those are the they're the two that the two movies that we're kind of like we have in our back pocket. We're trying to f- find the perfect time to to uh, to watch them. And I know everybody's kids are different and all that kind of stuff. But um, when would you watch those two? When when would you watch these movies? Each of you. F- with with children when would you say i mean six and seven seems a little young for both would you agree with that i I think kids are all very different from one another and as a parent you have to know the sensibilities of your own kid what i have found in my family you know we have seven seven kids and um that tends to the the younger kids tend to grow up a little bit more quickly having so many older brothers and sisters when it comes to entertainment choices my my children have grown up with watership down and with babe from the time that they were very very little Hmm. and um i would not yeah Uh, so so for me there is no there is no too young to watch these movies okay yeah, I would, I, I would agree with that. Um, you know, when I was writing my novels, I, uh, fantasy novels, I was writing them for adults, and I get more letters from 10-year-old girls than I do adults um, telling me which characters should get married should I ever write another sequel. Um, but <laughs> I, I would have been horrified to hand, that, hand those books to 10-year-old girls when I was writing them because I thought I was writing about subject matter that was just too... Uh, too far beyond hmm. uh, what they were ready to wrestle with, and I was very, very wrong. Um, hmm. Then again, you know, I, a high school English teacher gave me a copy of Watership Down when I was ten, and um, so many people are like, "What a horrible, horrible thing to do!" Was it did that traumatize you? And so many people tell stories about being traumatized by seeing the movie of Watership Down when they were a small ch- small children, thinking that it was like a cute Disney movie, hmm. and then they see rabbits tearing each other's throats out. Um, but I, you know, I can't deny that when I was earning my master's degree, my my primary essay, the one that I worked on the most, was about what a 
what a formative experience it was for me to dwell on that book and that movie as a child and how mm -hmm. that had a, a tremendous influence on my Christian faith, even mm -hmm. though that is not Richard Adams' priority, I don't think. Um, mm, right. So, uh, again, yeah, I agree with Stephen. It, it really de it depends on the, the child. It really depends on the family yeah. and the kind of context and tools that have been given to the child for what to do when they're reading something that they may not yet understand. Hmm. Hmm. All right, we're down to the final two here. So, Jeffrey, what is your... Uh, what is, well, you didn't do them in order, so pick one of your final two here for us. This is painful because as the conversation goes <laughs> on, I keep thinking of things I've forgotten. Um, <laughs> uh, I could go... I'll cheat again here. I could go one route and go to you know one of two movies that... Uh, transform biblical narratives in ways that get people talking. Um, mm. I know this is one that Stephen would not choose or want to talk about, but we could definitely spend time on The Last Temptation of Christ. Uh, mm -hmm. That's a very complicated, challenging book, very complicated, challenging movie. I think they complement one another pretty well. Uh, not a movie I frequently recommend to people, but my experience wrestling with the questions of that book and movie was also very instrumental in my faith at a very difficult time for me. Uh, similarly, um, Aronofsky's Noah um, may not be a great film, but boy, did it inspire a great conversation. Hmm. And I don't want to wrap this up without recommending an essay at the website Brightwall Dark Room yeah. by my friend Lauren Wilford. Um, who graduated from Seattle Pacific here, she wrote an essay called Sacred Texts and Ruined Childhoods on Aronofsky's Noah. And it is an ambitious, sweeping essay about literary adaptation, about the things we love on the page, and how that carries over to our responses to the movies. And ultimately, it becomes an argument for the, the importance of being open to grow and change along with interpretations of stories. And it's, it's the best treatment of Noah that I've seen. Hmm. Um, but since I can't say I love either of those movies, I love the conversations around them. Instead, hmm. I'm going to veer more in the, in the direction of Francis Ford Coppola hmm. and, um, there's a few to choose from here. <laughs> and yeah. And Stanley Kubrick too. It would be a toss up between apocalypse now and, um, 2001, a space odyssey. Hmm. 2001 A Space Odyssey, I guess, is well represented by the movie to some extent, but the movie is, I think, so much more than the book. Uh, it, is, uh, it is cinematic poetry of the highest level, um, and like Apocalypse Now, a very, just a harrowing look at human depravity and where our ambitions are leading us when our ambitions get ahead of our consciences. But more importantly to me, Apocalypse Now is the one because I love Joseph Conrad's novel so much. Um, and then the movie completely recontextualizes that um, into, you know, the, the mess of the Vietnam War. Hmm. And um, I think the spirit, this is a great case of the movie not following the text to the detail very much, but drawing from the voice of that text and honoring the spirit of that text so well, so that once again, you have a story of a soldier winding you know, down a river through the jungles to uh, face his own worst version of himself, uh, as well as a picture of what happens when American ideology is separated uh, from, from conscience and from faith. And you, you end up with the pursuit of happiness leading to absolute madness. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the aesthetic experience of Apocalypse Now on the big screen, 
that's that's the most impressive experience I've ever had in a theater. I got to see Apocalypse Now at the Cinerama here in Seattle uh, with rock concert level sound. Um, and I, I've never experienced a, a movie so so immersively as I did that one. And um, it always leads me back to the novel. It, it mm. always helps me dig deeper into the questions of the novel. And so I just think it's one of the greatest films ever made. I can't say I admire the choices the filmmaker made in the creation of the movie. If you watch the documentary, Hearts of Darkness, mm-hmm. uh, you, you see, you will come away very conflicted about the film itself and, and the choices that went into it. But we have to deal with the artifact, right? The thing that is left. And, and I can't deny that it is so valuable as a context for conversation and reflection. Hmm. Does that show up on your list, Stephen, when you're final two? <laughs> uh, no, and, and I'm not as much a fan of that film as Jeffrey is. I think it's interesting, though, that, that Jeff turned at this point in the discussion to the possibility of talking about biblical adaptations. Um, Aronofsky's Noah is a movie that I would say that I love, not without reservations, mm-hmm. but, but perhaps I'm not as able as Jeff is to distinguish between my enthusiasm for the film and my enthusiasm for the discussions that it hmm. occasioned, the, the ideas that Aronofsky explores in that film, uh, just I, I, I found really uh, electrified me and inspired me to do more writing than any film has in a very long time. I wrote I don't hmm. I I wrote at least four pieces inspired yeah. by that film. <laughs> that I wrote I a do. theological like reflection to a book. Pasolini's The Gospel According to Matthew is another very interesting um, film in this, in this, in the, with regard to the question of what the text does versus what the movie does. Um, Pasolini set for himself the challenge of not having any spoken words other than the words that are in Matthew's Gospel. And so wherever Matthew has narration, Pasolini has to try to express that with just visuals. And so you have a rather inexplicable image if you don't know the story of, you know, Mary uh, standing there, obviously pregnant and Joseph looking at her and, you know, wondering what to do. And, and so that's, it's one of the most interesting explorations of cinema as a medium when it comes to the, uh, the task of, of adaptation. But the film that is actually on my list, uh, my, my number four film in chronological order is The Miracle Maker 2000 um, mm. by Stanislav um, uh, Sokolov and, and Derek, w, Derek W. Hayes uh, with a brilliant script by Murray Watts. And what I love about this telling of the story of Jesus, which I watch every year, at Easter time with my family every single year um, is the, is the incredibly graceful way that it manages all of the challenges of adapting the story of Jesus uh, for the screen today, uh, which includes, first of all, cutting through the dullness of familiarity and helping viewers who have heard these stories all their lives to experience them in a new way while also illuminating the material for the less knowledgeable viewers for the for the more casual viewers because there's there's so much that the gospel writers take for granted that you know and you know that has to be expounded upon you have the tensions among the different gospel accounts you have sensitive issues around the portrayal of Jewish authorities in uh, you know 2,000 years of anti-Semitism. Um, there is the question of how to portray Jesus himself, how, how to convey someone 
who is divine while you only have the human and, and the visible to work with. And I don't know that any adaptation of the story of Jesus handles all of these issues as well as the miracle maker. Um, one of the one of the challenges that the filmmakers had uh, was that they were working with a split team of animators uh, with a team of cell artists in Wales and a team of stop motion puppeteers in Russia. And they, they had used both of these techniques with previous adaptations that were shorter, short old, old Testament shorts, but they wanted to combine them into one narrative here. And how do you do that? They came up with an absolutely brilliant solution that, illuminates the biblical text by using stop motion for uh, events that happen in the that are objective, as you might say, that are what the characters see um, as they're walking along. And then they segue to cell animation for the parables of Jesus, for uh, flashbacks and memories, and for other, uh, for, for the uh, temptation in the wilderness as, as Jesus has been fasting for 40 days and he's tempted by the devil to suggest some kind of altered consciousness. And, and that that technique becomes a tool of commentary when it comes to the mm. resurrection appearances of Jesus, which are depicted with stop motion. So it, mm. this is this is really happening. This is not just a, a religious experience. Jesus is really standing there. Mm. The screenplay is simple enough for children and yet sophisticated enough for uh, for theology and Bible students. It's unbelievable uh, <laughs> how mm. how much information is packed into such uh, such short scenes and such short lines that you can you can watch at any age and and but but still there's there's so much information being conveyed. I didn't realize the cast was as great as it is. I mean, Ray Fiennes, Julie Christie, yeah. William Hurt, Ian Holm, Richard E. Grant, Miranda. That's that's a that's a who's who. It's it's, it's an amazing cast, and um, I, I, especially Ray Fiennes as Jesus is just wonderful. He yeah, conveys yeah. the authority of the of a the kind of person that you would be willing to just drop everything and follow, and yet he's also mm. warm and approachable. And I can't think of any Jesus in any other film that is both of those things. Mm. He also, mm. as he as he talks, as he gives his teachings, as he does the parables, he sounds like he's speaking off the top of his head. It's a really wonderful performance. Mm. It's a good time of year to mention of, that movie. It's kind of remarkable too, because at the time, uh, the the other main reference point people had for Ray Fiennes was Schindler's List, where huh. he's a monster. <laughs> and so I remember seeing you know his name attached to it and thinking, well, that's interesting, and then seeing the film and and just thinking what an, that, that's when I re realized what an extraordinary actor he is uh, that, that his range was, was so great. What a career he's had too. Um, okay. So let's see, we got, we're down to uh, our final, final movies, right? Yeah. Jeffrey, what's your final movie on this list? I'm, I'm, I'm nervous because <laughs> I know Steven and I can't help but wonder if we're on uh -oh. the same Oh um, no! But, don't tell me! Don't tell me! No, 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 no. There's. There, we're gonna have to talk about Do this you later. Just say them at the same I, time. Count down. I, <laughs> I have a. I have a prediction of Stephen's top five, <laughs> and I've done really, really well so far. Um, but <laughs> it could be one of two things. So I'm not sure. Um, my number one is a river runs through it. Okay. Okay. Which is a great film and a great adaptation. Take it away. 
Okay, good. That tells me what your number one is then, but okay, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> you might be mistaken. I, might be I, went, I went a little counterintuitive. Okay. All right. So Norman McLean's novel, uh, I, I love it more than I can say. I use it mm. whenever I teach fiction. Mm. It's, it's, if a prose poem could be extended to the, to a novella or a novel, I mean, I, I think he just about accomplishes that. It's such a beautiful uh, story. It feels like a parable or a Bible story to me, even though it's set in the United States in Montana. Um, the opening lines of the book so beautifully set up the whole novel by talking about this convergence of rivers and by talking about this pastor whose life is is emerging of his passion for the Bible and his passion for fishing. Um, you you have a marriage of uh, the intellectual discipline of studying and interpreting the Bible and the aesthetic uh, immersion in nature and beauty. And it basically gives you a map of a country uh, it, which, if you can access it, you are living a full life. There is no separation between the, the gesture of casting uh, a line when you're fishing and the endeavor of inquiring uh, what God has to say to you today in the Bible. And then you have this, this fracture, this separation of brothers. The use of the phrase, the favorite, in the opening paragraphs of this book, uh, not only connected to Bible stories in which the issue of the favorite son, um, uh, you know, broke history, um, but also um, you, the, the movie preserves, celebrates McLean's language by Robert Redford's narration, which is, which is gorgeous, but he doesn't do too much of it. He doesn't, this is not an ill... A lot of a lot of cinematic adaptations are actually just sort of elaborate, illustrated versions of the book, uh, where they rely on the text and then provide pictures. This is completely cinematic, in that you know stretches of the film are almost si a silent movie, just just savoring the beauty of Montana. So much so that Montana has suffered because of the influx of tourists trying to find the places that this movie brought to such vivid life on the screen. Hmm. Oh, that's I didn't know so that. Sad. I've read articles about the, the the locations of this movie and how they are not what they once were because so many people sought them out after this movie opened. Hmm. Um, the casting couldn't be more brilliant. Um, I mean, Brad Pitt being cast as the young rebellious son was perfect, um, but it was also so eerie in how much he resembled a young Robert Redford in that movie. It was as if this movie was so personal to Redford that he was reconciling with a younger version of himself in this story. Um, yeah. Craig Sheffer, who strangely disappears from the movie world after this film, <laughs> I think he shows up in a couple of like uh, sort of B movies after this, but he's very, very good, very solid as the main character. Um, and I think the, the, the greatest uh, casting genius here is having Tom Skerritt play the Presbyterian minister, the father. There is a scene of him with his two young sons sitting, at the, sitting on the riverbank that is so graceful, such a beautiful portrait of fatherhood and of a father recognizing that his sons are growing up. Um, that it just defies description. So uh, it, it wraps up with text straight from the novel. And you also have to ad admit that this is McLean adapting his own life experience into a novel. A lot of people would classify this book as a memoir. Hmm. Um, 
but it closes with those gorgeous lines that um, uh, McLean's talking about his memories, and he says, eventually all things merge into one and a river runs through it. The river was cut by the world's great flood and runs over rocks from the basement of time. On some of those rocks are timeless raindrops. Under the rocks are the words, and some of the words are theirs. I am haunted by waters. Hmm. In that you get the weight of the grief of this character lamenting a loss and the weight of his father's influence and the weight of his, his heavenly father's influence. The fact that under the impressions of this particular story, this particular person's grief, those raindrops, you have the rocks, you have the timeless truths that his experiences illustrate. And then beneath the rocks uh, are the words. And he means, he means that in every sense of the word, word of the logos, <laughs> under, underneath the rocks uh, is Christ. Um, I am so moved by this film every time. And, and it seems to unfold with just effortless grace and simplicity. It does not feel like a strained attempt to capture a literary classic in a film. It, it really does live up to its name. And when it came out um, in 1992, there were so many other great films that it was, I think it was down like number 15 on my list for that year. But as the years have gone by, it is... It, it is at the top of my list for 1992 and, and high on my list of all time favorites. So mm. that's why I chose that one. Mm. Yeah, that was a good year, wasn't it? It was. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right I think I'm right. I th we'll see. What's your final one. <laughs> I'm going to surprise you. Uh, <laughs> um, that was, first of all, just let me say that is a great film, A River Runs Through It. And, and that was a beautiful distillation of its virtues as cinema and as adaptation, Jeffrey. Um, mm -hmm. One film that I consciously steered away from, not because I thought you were definitely going to pick it, but because I thought you might. And I, I know as a film that we both uh, esteem very much for its, its merits as cinema. Uh, and as adaptation, but which also over the years we've we've come to uh, appreciate more some of its limitations is Peter Jackson's Fellowship of the Ring. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Not not my um, not the fifth film on my list, and I, I do want to stress that I've I created this list in in chronological order, so it's the most recent film. Um, that I'm going to be talking about. I know it's a film that Jeff fully shares my enthusiasm for, um, although I probably have a greater appreciation for it as adaptation. Last year's Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. <laughs> <from, laughs> oh, and I, I, I scratched that off the list because I spent so much time talking about it the last time I yeah. to David here. On oh, the okay, okay, yeah. there you go. It, it, it all worked out. Yeah. <laughs> Um, from from the demented geniuses, uh, Chris Miller and Phil Lord, um, I have been a Spider-Man fan from my earliest childhood and in a way that transcended my attachment to all other superheroes. I identified so, so very hard with Peter Parker. <laughs> <laughs> And and I have loved every screen version of this character that I have that I've ever seen. But but here in this film the fundamental ideas behind the story of Spider-Man uh, from its roots, but also as it's developed over the years, um, as storylines have, have fractured and, and stories have been retold and reinterpreted most, most recently in the, um, the Spider-Verse um, uh, series, uh, which 
originally explores all of these these different spider people in in all of these different um, all of these different universes in within a within a multiverse. What the filmmakers have done in this film is to use the medium of animation mm-hmm. in a way that it's never been used before, in yes. ways that it's never been used before, to explore the possibilities of this kind of character and this kind of story um, in, in, a, in a very powerful way. Um, I just watched the film again last night, and mm. I was struck watching it um, that the most important three words in the film uh, are said over and over by the characters to one another. And those words are, you're like me. Yes. So yes. <laughs> these, these spider people experience this moment of connection. They, they set off one another's spider senses and they recognize that here's someone who is, who is able to, uh, to respond to them in a way that no one else that they've ever met has done. And this is such a powerful, and profound metaphor for an experience that has many different forms. The first time that I encountered another Spider-Man fan, I had that moment. I had that you're like me moment. We we both love this character. We both love this mythology. We both love these these stories. C.S. Lewis talks very yeah, profoundly and that. movingly about this in the Philia chapter in the Four Loves. The, the yeah. um, the story on, on uh, the chapter on friendship and yeah. that, that connection when you thought that you were the only one and then you realize that you're not. But in this particular story, it has another dimension. And, and this is something that I have come to appreciate um, writing about film. You know, that when I was growing up, my childhood, my big screen experiences, and I spent a lot of time in the movie theater as a boy, was, was full of heroes who looked like me. You know, I had. Luke Skywalker. I had Captain Kirk. I had Mm. Superman. And I went to school in um, mostly minority neighborhoods growing up. And my classmates were people who did not have that experience. You know, if, if, if you were in my class and you were African-American, you had Lando Calrissian and who else, you know, if you were Asian, you had Bruce Lee, if you could find him on, you know, Know, Channel 11 uh, on a Saturday afternoon, and who hmm. else? And here's a movie that allows so many viewers to to uh, you know and, and and children, children who have been have been growing up in this age of overwhelmingly uh, dominant superhero movie culture. Um, just it's just been uh, absolutely excluding almost anything else from from popular culture for 10 years now. Uh, it, it, and I, I know that Jeff and I share a sense of oppression by just how much superhero culture is dominating yeah. um, popular uh, popular cinematic uh, discussion in in the United States at this time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, and 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 even so, the vast majority of these characters are white guys. Um, here's a movie that offers children something different, and it offers me something different. Mm. Um, it offers another. Um, cinematic perspective for for family film animation on the father-son relationship i mean it's a very very rare movie that allows a father and a son to uh to have the kind of bond that we see here um between miles morales and his uh his father now it's a somewhat contentious relationship as father-son relationships often are uh but there's something much deeper 
And what I noticed this past time watching it, because I had also recently watched from the same filmmakers, their film ten year, made 10 years ago, um, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, is that in both of these films, the potential of the son to unlock his, his true power to, uh, to, to reach his full potential is only unleashed through the father's affirmation of faith Mm -hmm. in his son and admiration for what he can do. It isn't until, um, the, the hero of cloudy with a chance of meatballs. It isn't until his father holds up his lab coat and gives it back to him that he's able to come into his own and, and take on the challenge of the, the weather monstrosity that's been unleashed by his science and, and the town's appetites. It isn't until uh, Miles's father standing outside his dorm door as he's webbed up in a chair, unable to move, unable to speak, unable to respond to his father with this door between them. It's, it's a, as Walter Shaw pointed out in his review in Phil Freak Central, it's an amazing metaphor for the kinds of barriers that do um, come between fathers and sons. But his father tells him that he sees the spark in him, that there's something that he makes him so proud and that it's his gift. That's the moment when Miles is finally able to unleash his power. Um, and that is that kind of moment comes along so rarely yeah. in family films, especially in American family films. That is a moment that I really treasure. And it's mm. just, it's one magnificent moment in a really stupendous film. Mm. Yeah. Oh man, I just want to keep talking about that now for another hour. I'll have to hold <laughs> back. But yes. Um, I got to say, Stephen, I'm, I'm astonished. I mean, well, well I, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more on your choice. Um, I mean, I have spent decades listening to you talk about A Man for All Seasons. Oh, um, yes. With uh, I, 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 I did. I did. It, it was it was on my list. I did absolutely consider it, and and I I love that is a play that I love. I love the play, and I love the adaptation. I I for me the only reason I didn't bring it up was that I didn't think that it brought as much to the discussion of how an adaptation can transform its material. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or, because the, the play is already written for dramatic presentation. Right. It's, it's right. written yeah. with the understanding that we're going to be looking at actual actors standing in the same room together and speaking these lines. And I, and mm. I love the play so, so much. And I love the film so, so much. But, but for this particular discussion, I just didn't think it had as yeah. much to talk about. Yeah, I think, I think A Man for All Seasons and, and similarly, Vanya on 42nd Street are about as, as perfect an example you can get of a movie that 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 captures the full power of the text of a play, um, that yes. the the lines are so well spoken by everyone involved that it's just a perfect translation of a stage uh, play to a, a cinematic uh, medium. But um, mm. uh, anyway, I didn't want to let this go without at least mentioning that because I know it's important to Stephen and I both, but, uh, but yes. I understand, I understand your reason for, for holding back on it too. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking similarly about the third man, which is one of my favorite movies mm-hmm. and that, but that's a movie that Graham Greene basically wrote the novella or I think, I guess it's a novella. Uh, he basically wrote it once he'd already been commissioned by this with the screenplay, I think, and he wrote it as an experiment. So it, he basically wrote the novel to be cinematic. So I don't know that that's, would fit into the conversation as well. It seems to be doing some of the same things as the man, a man for all seasons. 
We should probably also note, I mean, I, I note with some chagrin as I look back over everything we've talked about, that we, we haven't talked about uh, a, single, a single woman adapting a, a, a text. And that, I think, is more um, evidence of a problem in the industry uh, that is ongoing, um, case in point, our recent Oscar ceremony. Um, we we but could have talked, for instance, about, um, about Deborah Granick's um, Winter's Bone and, and also Leave No Trace, no Trace uh, both yeah, of which are based on novels. We could have talked about Emma Thompson's beautiful adaptation of Sense and Sensibility for Ang Lee. Mm. Um, there, I mean, there, there are great examples out there. Unfortunately, there just aren't enough of them. Um, and I wish we were here. I so wish we were here talking about Ava DuVernay and um, A Wrinkle in Time. Oh, but we are not. Yeah, what a... I didn't. I purposefully didn't bring that up during the negative the negative section. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I was really really rooting hard for that, and I that's that was one where I was entirely prepared for the film to be something fundamentally different from the book, but still hopefully honoring the spirit of the book, or at least doing something wonderful in place of the book. Yeah, and I I just wasn't able to uh, I, I wasn't able to find what I was looking for. To be fair, I said Ava DuVernay, she directed it, but the writer was Jennifer Lee. So, um, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I'm glad you mentioned um, uh, Leave No Trace. I didn't realize uh, until very recently that that was a novel, but that probably is my yeah. favorite. Story of my abandonment. Uh, okay, yeah, that, that's the, um, that was the movie from last year that has meant the most to me, that I've spent the most time thinking about. Mm. So it, that might mean that it's my favorite movie of the year. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure exactly what it means, but I, that's the movie that, the, the individual moments and you know just certain images have been ingrained in my head and i don't know if it's because i watched it about a week after my first daughter was born back in november so, so that might be something there might be that sentimental sort of attachment to it but that's a great movie i'll have to read the book i'm going to correct myself fran walsh adapted fellowship of the ring so there's one. <laughs> okay. There you go. That's, that fellowship. We, we, that's another one. We probably could spend a long time just talking about that and then, and then not talking about two towers. Um, well, thanks to both of you for spending so much time. I know you have very busy schedules and uh, I really appreciate it. I, we pro- I probably should have uh, only asked for two movies. Then we could have actually spent only an hour on it. <laughs> <laughs> I really like how this is all unfolded. I, now I have a lot of things I want to go back and revisit. So, Yeah, there was, I, I thought there were going to be certain films that on the list that we would talk about at length, but we didn't. And I'm glad we didn't. This was more interesting probably. So thank you for your uh, creative lists and your thoughtful uh, explorations of those. I I really appreciate the time and and really enjoyed it. Thank you. Oh, thank you. It was a lot of fun. All right. Well, thanks so much to Jeffrey Overstreet and Stephen Grananis for joining me here on the podcast. That was such a fun conversation because as I said at the top, these are two of my very favorite subjects, movies and books and the intersection thereof. So that was, that was a great time for me. Hope you really enjoyed listening to that. Remember, Stephen Gray Danis can be found at decentfilms.com and Jeffrey Overstreet can be found at lookingcloser.org. They're both on Twitter as well and you can find them on Letterboxd if you want to do that as well. Look at some of their, uh, their ongoing reviews and reflections. Well, as always, thanks so much to everyone who's been listening. Don't forget about the other great content here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. Right now, we're going through Julius Caesar over on the plays The Thing. We're discussing The Spy Who Came In From The Cold over on Close Reads, our flagship show. And of course, there's The Daily Poem, where every day we are bringing you a new poem. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for being a part of the conversation. Thanks for being a part of this community. I'm David Kern. Be back next week with another episode of Libromania. Libromania.